chasing after you. If you can stand to your feet with your Bibles in your hand and travel to New Testament book, 1 Corinthians, and we're going to plant 1 Corinthians chapter 15, look at verses 20 through 34. And while you're traveling there, I just want to extend a warm welcome to all of our guests that's here with us. Echoing Pastor Nate this morning, we are so glad that you chose to come to Forest Baptist Church and spend some time with us this morning. And our prayer this morning is that the word of Jesus, uh, that it would transform your heart, that it would uh, draw you closer to this living Savior uh, that we here at Forest Baptist Church uh, worship and long to worship more. Uh, we also want to uh, once again extend that, that welcome to Middle Belt Baptist. Amen. What an honor it is to have you guys travel down to Louisville to enjoy uh, this city and then to come to, to worship with us. And uh, Pastor Belden, we, we love you and we thank you uh, for coming and, and for allowing your uh, church family to travel uh, to, to spend some time with us. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, what you hold in your hand is not some little self-help book. It's not a book amongst many books. It is the book. It is the very word of God. Written by man, inspired by God. So let's go to it and let's read it with humility. And then we're going to pray that the Holy Spirit would allow the message of the text that we read to be clear to us and to help transform us to look more like Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. First Corinthians chapter 15, starting at verse 20. But in, Christ, in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive, but each in his own order. Christ the first fruits, then at the coming those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end. When he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death, for God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. Otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized on their behalf? Why are we in danger every hour? I protest, brothers. By my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, I die every day. What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus, if the dead are not raised? Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Wake up from your drunken stupor, as is right, and do not go on sinning, for some have no knowledge of God. And I say this to your shame. Uh, would you pray with me? 
Gracious Father, we thank you for this opportunity to, to worship you. Abba, Father. We pray, Father God, that your Holy Spirit would manifest itself here through the presence of peace and power, Lord, that you would have your way. We pray, Father God, that your word would reign during this time and that you, Lord, would allow me to preach with clarity, allow this word, Father God, and your Holy Spirit to, to, to apply it to our hearts, Father God. Allow us, Lord, to be uh, confronted with the vision of you, Lord, that, that would help us to know, Lord, that we were made for more, Lord. We were made to be in your presence and to enjoy you. I pray, Father God, that you would speak for your servants are listening. Lord, we desperately need to hear from you. Speak, Lord. In the awesome, majestic, matchless, wonderful name of Jesus. Speak throughout this city. Speak throughout this country this morning. Uh, move us as preachers out of the way, Lord. And allow us, Lord, to proclaim him who is much more excellent. In Jesus' name, amen. Not sure if you've ever played the game Jenga. Anybody know Jenga? Anybody ever play it? All right, Jenga is a great game, great family game that uh, is a pretty much a game where you have a structure of 54 blocks, and with the blocks, uh, each person takes a turn removing one block from, uh, from the structure. And the, the hopes of it is, of course, to keep moving the blocks until finally someone moves a block and the whole thing comes tumbling down. Well, Jenga is a, a fun game to play if you've never played it. But the idea of the game is a horrible idea or philosophy to then take or transfer into your spiritual beliefs. If you, or if, if me, if, if we take the idea of Jenga, just take a little here, take a little there, uh, as we look to the Word of God, then uh, our theology, our, our, our belief in God is eventually going to tumble down. While Jenga is a great game, it is a horrible spiritual game to play because Christian theology is interconnected. Christian theology depends on, one doctrine depends on another, and if you fiddle around with one doctrine, it's going to affect another doctrine. And then there are certain doctrines that if you touch or tap or change a little bit, then the whole thing that we call Christianity falls apart. And one of those doctrines that we cannot afford to disagree on, that we cannot fiddle around with, that we cannot play with, is the doctrine or the teaching of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is an essential matter. In fact, Paul says that it is a matter of first importance. It is a key element in the good news or the gospel of Jesus Christ. So in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, we see the Apostle Paul writing to the church that he started some five or six years ago. And he is encouraging them to remember the message of the gospel, to remember the message of Jesus, and to remember that our hope is in a Jesus who not only lived the perfect life and who not only died the death that we deserve, 
but a Jesus who was resurrected from the grave and who is coming back again. The church of Corinth started to fiddle around with those things as the secular world in Corinth was was teaching that there was was really uh, either two extremes. There was no resurrection of the dead, that once you die, you die. This uh, theology that we see rampant in culture today, YOLO, you only live once, so you might as well live it up now. YOLO, Y-O-L-O, you only live once. All right. I'm like, what did he just say? Right? Um, and then it's the, uh, another theology that they were struggling with was that you do, uh, after death, you become a ghost, a shadowy figure, and there's no substantiveness uh, uh, to you. Well, the Apostle Paul is teaching them, no, we need to teach and we need to learn uh, what the Scripture says, what, what Jesus has passed on to us. So early on in 1 Corinthians, for those of you who are just uh, here and, and missed last week, uh, I don't want you to feel like you, you've messed, uh, missed anything. Uh, so we're going to, going to give you a quick review uh, because Paul's argument here is going to build on last week's. So Paul is telling them the, the central message of the gospel. He's saying you can't fiddle around, you can't play with the gospel. And he goes on in verses 1 through 11 to show that the, the gospel message, this message of resurrection is a message that we can have confidence in because of three reasons. Number one is because Scripture promised Old Testament scripture promised the resurrection. Over 700 years before the prophet Isaiah talked about a resurrection, we can go all the way back to the book of Job, which was the first book actually penned probably chronologically in the scripture. He speaks of a coming resurrection and of the Redeemer. So number one, he says scripture promises. But second, he says not only does the scripture promise a resurrection, but he says that there was historical testimonies that speak to the resurrection. In other words, there were eyewitnesses to the resurrection, and Paul begins to do a roll call. He says there's over 500 people who saw a risen Jesus. 500. And he says some of them are still alive today. He says most of them are still alive today. That's at least 251, not uh, excluding the apostles or those who actually walked with Jesus. But the third reason he says you can have confidence in the resurrection is because of the way uh, people were personally transformed. And he points to himself. He says, look, I, Paul, I am who I am by the grace of God. And if you know the story or the narrative of Paul, you know that before he saw a resurrected Jesus, he was opposing Christians, killing Christians, spent his life chasing them down and engelling Christians. But then he met the resurrected Jesus, and his life was changed. He went from Saul to Paul. And not only can we look at the life of Paul, we can look at the life of many others, those back then. Uh, we can look at the brother of Jesus, James, who while Jesus was walking the earth and doing these great miracles, did not put his faith and trust in his brother. But after his brother was resurrected and after seeing a resurrected Jesus, he committed his entire life to preaching about his brother. So much so in his, in his epistle, he calls himself a servant of Jesus Christ. But then Paul moves from that argument in verses 12 through 19. He, he gets really serious. He says, listen, church, if we fiddle around and play spiritual Jenga with the resurrection, there are some huge implications. And he gave six implications. 
He says, the first, he says, our preaching is in vain. If the resurrection of the body does not happen, if the resurrection of Jesus, a literal resurrection, didn't happen, our preaching is in vain. Second, he says, our faith is in vain. We are putting our faith in someone and in a movement that is not true. Third, he says, we are all misrepresenting God. <laughs> Judaism gets it right. Christianity doesn't because we're misrepresenting God. Right? Next, he tells us not only are we misrepresenting God, but he says, if the resurrection of Jesus has not happened, the dead, those who died before, who were in Christ, they're dead. That's it. They won't be resurrected. We won't see them again. And then, and then he says, which I think is the biggest, he says, if the resurrection didn't happen, you are still in your sins. You are still under the wrath of God. And finally, he says, if the resurrection had not happened, we are to be pitied more than anyone else because we have placed our faith in a false hope. And that's when we come to verse 20. We see that, that Paul is, is, is arguing for the resurrection. He goes from a negative and looking at these negative implications, and now he's going to go to, to a positive and looking at some positive things about the resurrection. And, and what Paul is doing here is he's continuing this theme of, of preaching to the church and saying, essentially, hold on to the resurrection of Jesus. Hold on to the resurrection of Jesus and you can live with hope. But if you don't hold on to the resurrection of Jesus, you're hopeless. See, a derailed theology leads to a derailed life. If your theology is off, your life is going to be off. And Paul is saying, no, we need to get this matter right so that we can have hope and so that our lives can, can be lived in a way that pleases God. So he gives us a vision of the resurrection that should propel us into mission for the Lord. And in this text, he gives four ideas that will help us to have a bigger and a better vision of the resurrection. Just four ideas, four word pictures that I want to kind of pull out of this text that will help us to treasure our resurrected Lord even more. And the first is this idea of first fruits. First fruits. Look at your Bibles, verse 20. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. Praise God. Verse 19, he says, if, if Christ hasn't been raised from the dead, we ought to be pitied. But he says, but Christ has been raised from the dead, which means we shouldn't be pitied, we should be envied if we live according to this resurrection hope. He says, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. He is the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. This idea of first fruits, he says. Now, this word first fruits is a, a term that is really rooted in, in Old Testament language. It's a term that was used for agriculture, and it referred to a first sample of an agricultural crop that indicates, which indicated the nature and the quality of the rest of the crop. Okay? Uh, the first fruits was that first harvest, which would have told a, a farmer how the rest of the crop was going to look. He says Christ is the first fruit, meaning that his resurrected body is the first of its kind. 
And his resurrected body tells us and shows us how our bodies will be when we are resurrected on that great day when he returns. This is a down payment for our hope. And not only is the resurrection a down payment, but look at it this way. The cross was the payment. We'll say the, down, the, the resurrection was the receipt. The resurrection is the proof that one day we too will rise. And one day we too will be given a glorious body. Jesus rose physically and he received a glorified body. We're going to talk and learn more about what that body looks like, can and cannot do uh, in the next section of 1 Corinthians. But what great hope. Our Savior is the first fruit of the harvest. Now, some may say, well, technically, Jesus isn't the first fruit because he's not the first person to be raised from the dead, which is true. We know that Jesus raised many from the dead uh, during his ministry. He raised the widow of Zarephath and the Shunammite. He raised the daughter of Jairus. He raised the young man of Nan. He raised Lazarus from the dead. But here's the thing. Each of them died again. Jesus is the only person who was ever raised from the dead who is still alive and who did not travel through the dark dungeon of death again. Jesus is the down payment. The the cross is our our down payment. The, The resurrection is our receipt. Jesus is the first fruit. And we can have hope. We can have hope in the fact that this life is not the end. We can have hope in the fact that we will receive more after we die and not less. Second vision we see in this text is a vision of being in Christ. Being in Christ, verse number 21 says, For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. And the question is, who is who is this man that caused death to come into this world? And who is this man that caused a resurrection to occur? And in verse 22, we see the answer, For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. So here Paul goes and he, he, he shows us a, a difference. He says there, there are two types of human beings, two historical human beings, and both bought important things into the world. The first is is Adam. He says, in Adam, death came into the world. And the second is Christ. He says, in Christ, resurrection comes. And it's important to know, my friends, that there are only two categories of humans. It is those who are in Adam and those who are in Christ. See, Adam was the, the first male. And Adam was given a a job to to take dominion over that which God had created. And God gave Adam one prohibition, and that was to, to not eat of a tree. And Adam disobeyed God and sinned, and through Adam's sin, death came into the world. Through Adam's sin, uh, the, the world became fallen. This is what we call the uh, Adamic curse. Uh, A curse came into the world. Now we have tornadoes. We we have natural catastrophes. But but even more importantly than that, we are each now born in Adam. 
Every single human being, every single baby, every single child after Adam has been born cursed. And the curse is this, the curse is that we are born sinners. Augustine, the uh, great church father, has a wonderful quote that says this, before the fall, Adam was able to sin. Before the fall, Adam was able to sin or not to sin. And after the fall, he was not able not to sin. (laughs) After the fall, Adam was just a full, blown-out sinner. And every single one of us, when we are born into this world, we are born with our natural tendencies. Our heart naturally goes towards sin. And the Bible says all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, of the standard of God. But it tells us that the wages of sin is death. We see that in Genesis chapter 3. Because Adam sinned, death is promised to to enter into the world. Every single human being, um, except for a very small few exceptions, are going to die. That's our payment. That's what we're cursed with. And if you have not put your faith and trust in Jesus, you are in Adam right now. You are in Adam. That means that you are not able to not sin. If you are in Adam right now, when you die, you will be resurrected, but then you will be resurrected not into eternal life, but into eternal damnation. Because one sin separates us from a holy and righteous God. You may say, well, what's the big deal about sin? Well, The big deal about sin is that God cannot embrace a sinner and remain just. God is holy. He is not like us. He is without blemish, without spot. For him to embrace a sinner in their sin would make him to be unrighteous. And that's a problem. The Bible teaches that God, himself solves that problem by by sending Jesus into his own son into the world. And and Jesus lived a a perfect life, the life that you and I, that we could not live, and Jesus died the death that we deserve on on Calvary's cross. And those who put their faith and trust in Jesus, in this God-man, they are born again, and we are now no longer in Adam, but we are in Christ. And the Holy Spirit gives us the power to not allow sin to reign and to rule in our lives as we grow to look more and more like Jesus. Paul says in this text that that we are not in Adam. We are in Christ if we've put our faith and trust in Jesus. In Christ, we are made alive. In Christ, we are regenerated. Look at your text. I want to show you something real quick. It says, verse 21, by a man came death and by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. Now, I want you to know that that word all um, is, is not a promise that of everyone who exists. It's a teaching called universalism. That, that everyone at the end will be saved. No, that word all is speaking to all who have put their faith and trust in Jesus. The only way into eternal life is through Christ Jesus. Find your life in Christ. 
And you don't find your life in Christ by simply making up your mind to be a better person. You don't find your life in Christ by, uh, by doing more for God or by turning uh, things around yourself, or by, by, by pulling up your own bootstraps. No, the only way you come into Christ is by becoming a child, is by admitting that you are a sinner, is by admitting that you are wrong, is by admitting that you cannot save yourself, that you can never be good enough, is by admitting that you need another righteousness, a righteousness that is outside of yourself, a righteousness that is alien to you, and that righteousness comes from Jesus, is by becoming desperate and surrendering to Jesus, and saying, Lord, I need your son, Jesus. I need his sacrifice to make me right with you. Those who are in Christ believe this wholeheartedly, and one day we'll see this resurrected Jesus. The third picture I want to show you in this text, first was this idea of first fruits, this idea of our bodies. One day, being in the likeness of Jesus. Second is a, a picture of what I'm going to call a resurrection parade. This is just glorious. I want to spend a little time here. This, this resurrection parade. Look at your Bibles. We're going to see a, a parade, a, 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 an order of events that's going to happen. Looking at verse 23. But each in his own order, Christ the first fruits. Then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when I say all things are put in subjection, it's plain that he is accepted who put all things in in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him and God may be all, that God may be all in all. So, so now Paul, he gives us a parade. He gives us an order of events that's, that's absolutely glorious. And the first is what we've already talked about. The first order of events in this resurrection parade is the fact that Christ is the first fruits. He is the first harvest who has a, a new kind of body that, that is uh, no longer uh, able to die or rot or have cancer or have arthritis or have headaches, right? But then after that, he says that something else is going to happen. He says those who are in Christ will be raised. Those who are in Christ will be raised at the return of Jesus those who have put their faith in them in Christ will be raised from the dead. Paul says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 13, these words, But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope for. Since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. Listen to this. For the Lord himself would descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of a trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds who meet with the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. We will always be with the Lord. 
Therefore, encourage one another with these words. What a picture. We will receive resurrected bodies. We, at the twinkling of an eye, at the sound of a trumpet, will be caught up, suspended in midair with Jesus. Those who have put their faith and trust in him will rejoice with him. There's a resurrection that's coming. And it's a glorious resurrection. There is a parade that is coming that you do not want to miss, that you want to be a part of. Listen, this is meant to give you hope. Your issues, your burdens, your grief, your suffering, your pain should be lived in light of this day. In light of a a coming promised party that is bigger and better than any party you've ever went to. That's what Paul says. Jesus said in John chapter 5, verse 28 through 29, there's going to be a general revelation, listen, uh, a resurrection. Listen to what Jesus said. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. And those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. What's the good that we do? The good that we do is putting our faith and trust in Jesus evil that we do. The evil that we do is disbelieving in Jesus. And our lives and the fruit of our lives will show over time which we have done. But the dead are going to be raised too, just to judgment. Daniel chapter 12 verse 2 says the same thing. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame in everlasting contempt. That word everlasting is eternal. That's not like, we're not just going to be raised and, and then suffer for a little while and cease to exist. No, that means those who have not put their faith and trust in Jesus, who have not accepted the warm invitation of the Father to, to have eternal life, to have joy, to, to have peace in Christ will be in hell for eternity. Immense suffering as God pours out his wrath on those who have rejected his son, Jesus. And we say, well, isn't God just unjust and isn't he unfair and isn't that an overreaction? No, sin means a lot to God. Eating, if eating a piece of fruit caused God to bring death into this world, the things that you and I think, say, and do, for, even if it's just for a year, (laughs) even if it's just for a day, even if it's just for a second, deserve judgment. And we are choosing to live our lives apart from this God. And the Bible says every good and every perfect gift comes from above. We are choosing to live our life apart from everything that is good in this world. And that choice, God simply gives us what we want, and that's life without it. There's going to be a general resurrection. 
Both John speaks of it. Both Daniel speaks of it. Both 1 Peter speaks of it. He speaks of this, this glorious day when those who are in Christ will be raised. He says in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 22, Jesus has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. Jesus right now is in heaven, <laughs> surrounded by angels, surrounded by other types of beings, waiting for that time when the Father releases him to return to the earth and when that trumpet will sound and when those who know his voice will be raised. Those graves will open up, the sea will give up those bodies who have went on, in some miraculous way there will be an intertwining and we will receive new bodies. Look at this resurrection parade. The next thing we see in this resurrection parade after Jesus, the first fruits, after we are raised from the dead, we see that Christ is going to take on rulers, authorities, and powers. Look at your Bible. Look at verse 24. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom of God, the Father, after destroying every rule and every authority and every power. Every ruler, every authority, and every power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his when Jesus comes back, he's coming back to take care of business. <laughs> Revelations 19 show him as a, a king coming back in majesty on a horse, and his, he's coming back to wage war. And this should give us hope as we look at the world news, as we look at U.S. news, and as, as we see so much injustice, so much pain, human trafficking, as we see genocide as we see uh, uh, fever, as we see these sins, and we see people who are, who are high up and in control, and we say it's never going to get better, we should know that Jesus is coming back, and he's coming back to put all things in order. And even as we look at these events, even as we hear these events as Christians, we should interpret these events with hope, knowing that God is going to make all things right. And one day Jesus will rule, and one day this world will no longer be under the curse of Adam, but it will be under the reign of Jesus. Psalm chapter 2 says that God is not on his throne, worried about ISIS, worried about the, the, the fat cats on Wall Street who's crook, crooked, some of them. God is not worried about them. In fact, Psalm chapter 2 says that those who are coming up against God's reign, they get a certain type of reaction for God. You want to know the reaction that God is... It's how he's reacting. The Bible says he's in heaven laughing. He's not worried. He's laughing. And when God laughs, ain't nothing funny. <laughs> Psalm chapter 2 says that, that God is not stressing about these events. Look at this parade. Christ will come back and Christ will make all things right. There's going to be a, a fight. I was about to say an epic fight. It's not going to be epic. We can promote it like uh, 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 Pacquiao and, and Mayweather, but it won't, be, it won't be epic. It's going to be way less of a fight than Pacquiao versus Mayweather. It's going to be a very short fight. The fight is going to be so short that the Bible says that Jesus and his crew, uh, that, they, that they're dressed in, we're dressed in white linen, right? Who goes to war in white linen? So nobody is worried about the fight, but the Bible says that when Jesus opens up his mouth at the fight, his enemies are destroyed. And sometimes we have this view of God versus Satan, like there's, a real, there's not a battle. 
Satan is a puppy on a leash that only can do what God is allowing him to do. As some have said, Satan is God Satan. God controls him. And we ought to not worry about him. And we ought to look to the day when Satan, all of his imps, all of his demons, and all of his friends will be defeated by our Savior. But we also should look to that day with angst in our hearts saying, Lord, come, Maranatha. But at the same time, Lord, Lord, wait, because there's some people I want to be dressed in linen on that day. I've got some friends, my friend Nuke Nuke, my friend Bebe. I want to see them dressed in white linen, my cousin-in-law, my co-worker. So come, but save them, Lord. The last part of this parade, we see that Christ... Christ is going to do something interesting. After the first fruits, after we're caught up in heaven with him, after he defeats his enemies and puts them under his feet, something shocking is going to happen. And we should look forward to this when the resurrection of the last day comes. Look, Christ is going to then hand the kingdom back over to God, the Father. Look at this. Looking at verse 27, for God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. So what is he saying? Saying all things are put under Jesus' feet. When Jesus died on the cross and was raised to the dead, God handed the kingdom over to Jesus. Jesus is is ruling and will continue to rule. Everything is put under his feet. And after Jesus and and the last day that the resurrection happened, the Bible says that Jesus then is going to hand the kingdom back over to God. Verse 28, when all things are subjected to him, then the son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him, under Jesus, that God may be all in all. Can you see that great coronation where the son who has been given the gift of the kingdom looks to the father and says, God, this all belongs to you. Even though he's equal to God, in essence, he submits to God the Father in Rome. And he says, Lord, this is yours. This is your kingdom. What a beautiful picture. What great anticipation we should have. I want to read something to you real quick, just to make this point. wasn't going to do it. Philippians chapter 2, common, common chapter about the humility of Jesus and the incarnation of Jesus and how he became man. In verse 7 it says, speaking of Jesus, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, by being born in the likeness of man and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Therefore, verse 9, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus, at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue shall confess that Jesus is Lord. Listen to this. To the glory of God the Father. Jesus has done all of this to the glory of his Father, and we, on the last day, will get to experience Jesus glorifying, showing off his Father. 
and his father showing off his son. And us worshiping this triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The one who is victorious. So we see this picture of first fruits, this image of first fruits. We see this, this image of us being in Christ. We see this resurrection parade. And finally, we see a picture of suffering in light of the resurrection. Paul is going to end this little section by, by pointing us to the fact that the resurrection allows our sufferings to make sense. Verse 29. Otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized on their behalf? Now, we don't have a, a lot of information about exactly what Paul means here. Different uh, theologians will land on different places. But, but what's happening here is, is Paul is bringing up a, a common practice there that maybe some uh, Corinthians are doing. They're baptizing people on behalf of someone else who's dead for whatever reason. And Paul is not confirming that and saying that that's a healthy practice because we know that that is not uh, taught in Scripture that we should do. Uh, but he's also not confronting it because he has another point. His point is this. He's saying, look, if there's no resurrection and you all are starting to fiddle with this doctrine, why are you still baptizing people on behalf of somebody else, maybe in honor of somebody else? He's saying that doesn't make sense. Then he goes on and he continues and he says these words in verse 30. Why are we in danger every hour? He says, I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord. I die every day. What do I gain? If humanly speaking, I ought to fight with beasts in Ephesus. I fought with beasts in Ephesus if the dead are not raised. His point is, why would I be going through what I'm going through if there's no resurrection of the dead? And in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, Paul lays out a whole bunch of stuff that he's gone through from being hungry to being beaten to almost to the point of death to, to being betrayed to having a stress of all of these churches that he's helped start it and, and going back to these churches and caring for these churches and raising up elders and, and, and counseling folk and, and, and stepping in the way. He's saying, if, if the resurrection has happened, Why? What's the point of me fighting with beasts at Ephesus? We don't know exactly what he's referring to, but he gives us a picture of suffering. He's saying, I suffered really badly at Ephesus. You all know this. That's why he's pointing out, you heard about what I went through at Ephesus. If there's no resurrection of the dead, why would I go through that? If there's no resurrection of the dead, what sense does it make for missionaries who spend their life in tough places where the gospel is not heard or, or not being preached, and they dedicate their whole lives to a people who do not believe in Jesus. He says, what's the point? He says, no, we do these things. We suffer in light of the resurrection. We suffer because we know that there is more to life. And some of us, the we, 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 and, and many times, all of us, when we suffer, we tend to get very self-righteous. We tend to think that, uh, to, to, to clam up. We, we tend to want to point our finger at God. And this is after maybe one day of suffering. You know, the Holy Spirit, a fruit of the Spirit is that we're long-suffering. 
but maybe two years of suffering, we're already throwing in the towel. We're looking to relocate, change cities, change churches, change spouses, change kids, change jobs. We're starting to doubt whether or not God really exists, whether or not he loves us. Five years of suffering? We're like, oh no, somebody done messed up, slipped and bumped their head, right? We're ready to give up the gospel, give up. And a lot of times it's because we have lost sight on the fact that this lifetime makes up this, maybe this, much of our lives. That in Christ we have eternal life. We have trillions and trillions and trillions of, of years to live. And that if we keep that in mind that God has called us, he saved us for a specific purpose and reason, and we may not know that purpose and that reason why we live, but if we keep our eyes on him and just be faithful to him and suffer with wisdom in Christ, that he can do something that is exceedingly above and beyond in us and through us and and in people and through people that we could ever ask or think he can use our suffering for his good and and, and our glory, his glory and our good. But if we don't believe in the resurrection, if our hope isn't in Jesus returning, we are going to suffer like spoiled children. We are going to throw a hissy fit. We are going to have to have it our way. We are going to be mean and conniving. We are going to look for exit doors every five steps. If we think that this is life and this is the best that it gets. And I come to tell you that this is not the best, that you are not living your best life now. I'm not living my best life now, no matter how good it is or how bad it is. It's going to change. And we are going to see our Savior, the one who died in our place. And we are going to be celebrated by him, us, celebrated by him as his, the Father's children and Jesus' little brothers and sisters, and we will hear those words, faithful brother and sister, well done. And then at that moment, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 17 and 18, our lives are going to flash before us. We are going to remember the sufferings that we went through. We are going to remember the, the illnesses. We are going to remember the, the difficult relationships. We are going to remember the coworkers and the jobs and, and feeling trapped at home. We're going to remember all those things, and we're going to conclude, and this light momentary aff- affliction is preparing us for the eternal weight of glory beyond comprehension. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen, we are going to say, that was light. If I had just just put my faith and trust in this Christ, no matter what you're going through in light of Jesus, one day you will conclude this was light. It was well worth it. But here's the thing. Faith, for all I trust him, F-A-I-T-H, faith, is the ability not to see Jesus, not to be able to see or comprehend heaven, but to live with confidence that is there. It's like a vacation. You got a vacation plan. You know it's coming next week. 
Everybody's tapping on your last word, but you're not freaking out and going off on people because you know next week you're going to be somewhere else. But here's the thing. Vacations can disappoint. Vacations can get canceled. But not heaven. Not eternity. God is calling us to wake up and to live with hope to stop playing around with doctrine, to stop playing around with disbelief and to, to trust in his resurrected Savior. Get your Bibles as we close. Verse 32, what do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus if the dead are not raised? Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Wake up from your drunken stupor, as is right, and do not go on sinning, for some have no knowledge of God. And I say this to your, to your shame. Paul says, there's no resurrection. We can co- conclude. Let's just party. Let's just, let's just have a good time. Let's just do what we want to do, when we want to do. Let's just be hedonists. In fact, he's quoting Isaiah here. When Isaiah uses these same exact words to Jerusalem and he warns them as, as, as enemies are going to be coming in to, to take God's people captive, rather than God's people repenting and turning to trust God, they just start throwing parties and start breaking commandments, saying, well, we're about to be enslaved, so we might as well just throw a party. Paul is saying, some of you, if you give up the resurrection, if you give up the gospel, that's where you're going to end up. You're going to end up saying, let me just live for myself. God made you for so much more than a weekend club or party scene. God has so much more for us than cheap thrills, quick thrills, and quick highs. If you knew what God had for you in the midst of trial, in the midst of suffering, if we just knew, we will conclude like Paul that we are in a drunken stupor. Some of us, someone in here today, you're going to be shocked one day when there's a loud shout and a big rumble. We're still alive to see it. And there's a lot that's going on in the heavens that we can't explain. And there's a king who begins to rule. We're going to be shocked and we're going to be embarrassed because we did not put our faith and trust in. And others, we will rejoice as we know that the time of no more is here. If you do not know Jesus, I want to encourage you today to repent of your sins, to repent of living a life focused on you, to have a change of mind, to do a mental U-turn, and to turn and trust Jesus, to center your life on his life, on his death, on his burial, on his resurrection. And to cling to him. And to believe that he is out for your good and God's glory. And to trust him even when you can't trace him. Today I want to invite you to have this relationship with him. And if you're here today, I want to invite you to put your eyes on the resurrected Jesus. On the first fruit 
to center yourself in Christ, to look forward to this resurrection parade, and to suffer well, knowing that this is a light, momentary affliction. Even though we don't under, even though it doesn't feel like it, and it seems unrealistic to believe that in light of how good God is and what he has prepared for us, that it's all worth it. Let's pray.